I, it's funny because I had a friend say this to me that because I kept going through stuff and she was like Tiffany you know whatever it is that your soul needs to learn in this moment you're revisiting this for a reason mm. you know and that that reason may not have anything to do with you and it may be a story that you're going to tell so I'm actually starting to get toward that where because because you really mm -hmm. when you're going through things you're like what is the point of this and maybe that is the point the point to kind of see yourself in the other and this you know, collective consciousness that, you know, and, and to, to get beyond that, this life is just about me right here and right now, that something I could do might be just the the tip of the iceberg that's gonna have um, impacts for years and decades to come when I'm, or generations to come when I'm long gone and not remember, but that's still a legacy, you right? Like, maybe that's the point to get us away from this ego-driven yeah. move in the world. So African-American language, though, is very much prominent is in the discipline, especially in sociolinguistics. Um, but for anthropology, I did not see that being explored as much. And I come from a background where I was looking at a part of African-American language, which is called African-American Vernacular English, which people, when they think of that, they think of bonics, but that term is very loaded and problematic. Um, and it has negative connotations because of how it was portrayed in the 90s. But I look at it and there's all these verbal art traditions like hip hop, um, black sermonizing from black preachers, signifying all these other things, these traditions that impact larger American culture. And I want to look at it from a positive perspective and I'm thinking these verbal art traditions is the way to do it. It's artistic, it's creative, it's innovative, but it's being taken up outside of the Af African American community in very interesting ways, consciously or unconsciously, that is having long-term influence on the culture and should be recognized. And that I hadn't seen that much in linguistic anthropology as I wanted personally. So I felt, speaking of a calling and the gift, and I felt a responsibility of something larger than me needs to do this so that African Americans behind me can come and have these conversations. We can, uh, anthropologists can then look um, at the communities that they're ignoring, I'll just say conscious or unconscious, and say, hmm, we need to have more conversations around this. So that's what I'm trying to do. Someone's opinion may contradict yours. Where's my friend Alan? It's all about your perspective. Who are we and what is the nature of this reality? What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. We are on site at the American Anthropological Association's annual meeting in Vancouver, British Columbia, for our second partnership with them. We are now going to be talking about linguistic anthropology and so much more. We have Tiffany Marquise Jones joining us on the show. Hello. Hi, T. What's up? Hi. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm very pumped for our conversations. Good. This is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> I want to start things off mm -hmm. with some of our big picture questions we like asking our guests. Fair enough. Are we really all one? Now, <laughs> I'm a linguistic anthropologist, so words matter. Yes. When you say we, who is we? Or should I define that? Yeah, this is this is a good point. If I was to define we, I would say all that is. 
how would you define the we in that question? Okay, I'll try to. So it's interesting because when I think of we, and because we're sitting in the building of the AAA conference, we could be we as anthropologists. Um, we now, I would think just because I am American, we're talking about American, but we're sitting in Canada, so I assume a global context, we as in people. But then I also am aware that we could be in connection to nature and to animals and to, so I have multiple levels of we, and I have something to go say to about highest. all of that, go okay? To, oh, you want to go at each level? I can. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, break it down how you want to break it down. Uh, okay, good. If I'm talking specifically about anthropology, I think the, um, the polished answer would say, yes, we are all a discipline of one. But I think something that has been very much discussed here is how it's very splintered. Like everyone sits in their silos. We have four fields, linguistic anthropology, bioanthropology, archeology, span and then the cultural aspect. Now I sit in linguistic anthropology and we, I feel very siloed. I feel like I don't experience the other fields as much. And also I'm a black anthropologist. I don't feel like I experience other black anthropologists as much as I would like to. And there's an association of black anthropologists. So I feel very separated out. And also I'm always the only linguistic anthropologist in the room. Um, I get questioned whether I am doing anthropology when I am doing linguistics. So it's just very fascinating. So I don't think I feel that, especially as a graduate student. Which is interesting because I do cross over and do other aspects and a lot of other fields feed into my work, but they're so specialized. I think people like to keep their little boundary of I am a biological anthropologist or physical anthropologist. I am a linguistic anthropologist because that's going to determine where you get jobs, who values your work, who, what kind of conversations you can participate in. Um, America, if I'm going to go up the ladder, yeah. um, <laughs> I'm a black woman, <laughs> African-American scholar, who's studying um, gentrification in Washington, D.C., where people's cultures are being railroaded and um, kicked out because of the, the transplants that are moving in, and they're being silenced and ignored. So we very much feels like it does not cover African-American culture. We depends on dominance. A lot of times, you know, um, places or talks of whiteness in particular, or through the lens of whiteness, I should say. So sometimes when people are in a room and it's um, mixed, and especially if I'm the only woman of color and people say we, I'm very much, I'm quick to jump in and say, that doesn't represent my experience. That doesn't represent how I would approach this. So no, I very much don't feel like um, my culture and community is always a part of that we. Globally, um, Someone has said that racism is now being replaced with tribalism um, from a national perspective. And very much um, the Americas is, or I would say America, the States, has ostracized itself from a lot of people right now, right? Um, so I don't know if we fit in the same, or see ourselves in the global community as much as I would like. I see myself as a global citizen, um, but this we are the world, not sure anymore, especially in this current context. But I like to believe that we are all a part and affected and influenced by one another where I'm here um, in the States in urban culture versus someone on the other side of the room um, versus someone on the other side of the world. I do feel like what I do over here can't, what's, what's that phrase? Like a, a ripple over here will create like that butterfly. Like I yeah. do believe that there's this constant flow of energy that happens spiritually, emotionally, mentally, I do feel like we are all connected. Whether or not we realize and act from that position, not so much.
but I believe we're connected spiritually to animals, to nature, to divine, all of it. Yes. Sorry. That's yes. a long answer. <laughs> yes. I, 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 pre I really appreciated your breakdown a lot. And I want to hit the ball back on the last point, because we'll get to that, um, to your, the middle point that you made, especially when we get deeper into your research. Okay. Um, and uh, and I know, I'm confident that AAA will, over time, become even more um, cohesive across those four that you initially mentioned. I hope so. The first part. I'm very confident. Mm -hmm. um, it's already so beautifully multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, in the very last part, on a spiritual level, on a deep interconnected level mm -hmm. of all, is the most upstream issue that our society faces mm -hmm. that is causing all of the downstream symptoms that we see, the fact that we ourselves are not deeply immersed in that interconnectedness, that we are not deeply immersed in unconditional love, mm -hmm. and that we are not passionate about having when every child comes into the world them to experientially experience mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I do see that. Um, so I actually had a com an interesting conversation um, with a friend um, about particularly I think the black experience is very much rooted in weeness whether we want it to or not. If you know, if I see someone on the news that has done something great and they're of African-American descent, I'm, we're all like, yes, that's a win. Mm -hmm. If I see someone that has, you know, committed a crime and it's then judged as all black people, it's like, oh my gosh, what happened to us? It's, it's this weakness, right? So then I move in that sense of what I'm doing is gonna impact my community. I don't think that bleeds out. And this person has said um, that they've talked to people that say, you know, Coming from a European tradition, I don't really think of that weirdness from my community that way, unless it's just their family or blood ties or things of that nature. So as someone who kind of partially moves in weirdness in that sense, I do think the world is lacking that, seeing themselves in other cultures and other people, seeing themselves even in how we treat animals, how we treat the environment, how we relate to spaces is very much like, well, you know, that's not going to bother me over there, you know, if, if, if I'm doing this if it doesn't impact my immediate environment, it's fine, right? I don't see what's gonna happen over there, so why should I care? Or if it um, impacts this economy or the globe 50 years from now, if the world blows up, well, I'm dead, I don't care. We don't see ourselves in even the generations behind us. So I do think that is a problem and part of why some of the issues that we're experiencing, we don't know how to deal with it because we're kind of disassociating that spiritual, emotional, mental, all these connections, these points of connections, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, right? Because if it's on gender dynamics, well, I don't, I can't identify with that. If it's race dynamics, I can't identify, socioeconomics, all of this, right? Um, and we start from this self experience. If I don't get it, I can't empathize with it. If I didn't go through that, how do I know how to talk about that? So, and it takes a specific kind of person that's willing to see themselves in a global community or a interconnected way to kind of say, let me, if I don't understand it, figure out how I am impacting other spaces and other places. That makes sense. Yeah. And some of the most, I guess, in indigenous wisdom around things like a seventh generation principle, you've got to think that far out in advance about all of the different 
decisions that you make or that the breath of air that I take in comes from phytoplankton and trees, the bite of food comes from the power of the sun. These are just things that if a child's born in a metropolis and they don't get to see the cosmos because of light pollution and they exchange a sheet of paper for the apple, that it's inevitable that there's going to be a sense of disconnection. Right. And stacked up in top of boxes, now having to go out to trees and beaches for nature therapy. I mean, it's getting quite ridiculous to, you know, to juxtapose these two indigeneity and modernity and then try and see if maybe actually the marriage of the two can actually build that best forward path. Right, right. And it's interesting. Recently, I was teaching a, a class of kindergartners and um, just on something really small. And it, it really helped me understand this about this connectedness. They um, get in a lot of food in this class through this program and they wouldn't eat it. They would just waste it, play with it, throw it away. And I was getting really disturbed by that because I'm just thinking how many homeless did we walk over that could have eaten that food, you know, or how many things wasn't properly ciphered into uh, recycling bins that could help this planet. And so I started to say, okay, I understand you're a kindergartner. I understand you're preschool, but let's start to have these conversations about how what you do in this moment with this plate, with this food can impact so many people or down the road. And so we started yeah. talking, I made that into a lesson about recycling, about um, responsibility. Okay, if you don't want the food, don't touch it because then we can then use it to give it to the homeless or shelters or whatever, things like that. And it was really interesting. They, they can't even start to fathom that what I do will impact someone I've never seen or a world that I might mm. not understand and interact with or that if I put this in this right bin, it could be recycled and reused for another person, right? And it was really interesting to see that from a child's eyes that if you can have these conversations from very young, yeah. right? Yeah. I think that then you get socialized into that weakness, into this yes. us and the world and how I, what I do impacts other things. But if we don't, what does that responsibility look like 20 years from now when that kindergartner's older, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, yeah, I do think it's very fascinating. And because I am constantly judging myself from this weakness, I'm also aware that the work that I'm doing right now is gonna help or not help someone 20, 15, 20 years from now. So, it, but I am aware of that. That's not always been because I wanted to think that way, it's because I'm aware that people who did not think about me years before, I'm still trying to break through those barriers and those boundaries, if that makes sense. Yep. So I think it, if you're impacted in a way that you recognize that other people's actions have hurt me, hopefully it will help you locate yourself that the same going backwards. And in terms of indigeneity and modernity and things of that nature, um, we are because we're so siloed and we like to think things in static terms, if we only understand indigenous being past or rule or other or and whatever these romanticized notions and we don't see how indigeneity is reflected today if I don't encounter other cultures that are repping indigenous um, perspectives and not the way that I see it because right if someone says well this is how I understand indigeneity and then someone who's indigenous is like well actually but if you don't give them the space to correct you or to reflect like in contemporary terms that challenges your norms yeah. right yeah. then we're stuck I hope that makes sense because yep. I feel like I'm rambling. No, you good. Okay. Totally. <laughs> I'm feeling. I'm feeling like this is excellent. There's. There's another aspect to this that you know you begin uh, showing us the sheer complexity of of basically people not feeling we or us or the one or unity, God, creation, source, Big Bang, universe. Mm -hmm. Don't care what word you use to describe mm -hmm. it. That 
right there having this big challenge for us to kind of be like, wait, we are that? Mm -hmm. For us to remember that. Do you think that's the whole purpose of this reality? Reality as being what we're doing on the earth? Reality as in this, this entire experience mm -hmm. of all that is has created this for the exact purpose of us trying to realize that this is a big grand challenge that we have to get through. That's so, it's funny because I had a friend say this to me that, because I kept going through stuff and she was like, Tiffany, you know, whatever it is that your soul needs to learn in this moment, you're revisiting this for a reason, mm. you know, and that, that reason may not have anything to do with you and it may be a story that you're gonna tell. So I'm actually starting to get toward that. Where, because you really, mm -hmm. when you're going through things, you're like, what is the point of this? And maybe that is the point, the point to kind of see yourself in the other and this, you know, collective consciousness that, you know, and, and to, to get beyond that, this life is just about me right here and right now, that something I could do might be just the, the tip of the iceberg that's gonna have um, impacts for years and decades to come when I'm, or generations to come when I'm long gone and not remember, but that's still a legacy, right? Like, maybe that's the point to get us away from this ego-driven yeah. move in the world. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, it, you, it, you're viewing yourself more like a divine, being that is a that has a, a role to figure out in this big let's say experience that we're all a part of and if you view something that is an obstacle as something that is a challenge to overcome and to level up gain experience points become better help the world flourish be in service find your gifts bring them forth that sort of a viewpoint on this can just help drive people towards um, things that transcend them individually, their ego, and uh, things that bring us more to an ego-less, mm -hmm. selfless, prosperous right. place. And so that is something that we obsessively talk about on the program. I'm, I'm glad that we had that back and forth on it. Let's get into yes. let's get into the depth on linguistic anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, study of African American language and its verbal art traditions. Sounds like a mouthful, right? <laughs> yes, this is a complex. Um, this is very complex in the first place because it, we, from what we know, this was what about f how many five hundred ish years ago? Even be the beginnings mm -hmm. of an African American, American something, something, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and it's whatever African-American language is, is still becoming known, is still being figured out. Like the term African-American language has just shifted from African-American English not that long ago. And before that, black English. And before that, Africa, you know, language. And before that, other. So it's been iterations of this evolving because even the study of African-American language was done from a white point of view of men trying to figure out what is this babble talk, as they put it, or this broken English, or this bad talk that slaves are doing up until the point where then black scholars start to, well, and, and I would say some white scholars start to show like, no, this is a structured language that has its rules and it is not incorrect. It is not um, inferior to that standard American English is one variety. And then there's this other language variety that is not less than, is just for this community. And then black scholars took that over and, and starting to do excellent work in showing like it's not even just one level black, it's middle class black, it's black in urban spaces, it's black and queer, it's, it's female African-American women's language. So it's still very much evolving um, today. And, and 
and then the roles that I take within it as just a PhD student, I'm sure I'm only getting like a pinprick of the larger view for the people who've been in this field for a while and see it involve, evolve in, in front of their eyes. I will, I, it's, I'm sure a completely different experience of that. So African-American language though is very much prominent as in the discipline, especially in sociolinguistics. Um, but for anthropology, I did not see that being explored as much. And I come from a background where I was looking at a part of African-American language, which is called African-American Vernacular English, which people, when they think of that, they think of bonics, but that term is very loaded and problematic. Um, and it has negative connotations because of how it was portrayed in the 90s. But I look at it and there's all these verbal art traditions like hip hop, um, black sermonizing from black preachers, signifying all these other things, these traditions that impact larger American culture. And I want to look at it from a positive perspective and I'm thinking these verbal art traditions is the way to do it. It's artistic, it's creative, it's innovative, but it's being taken up outside of the Af African American community in very interesting ways, consciously or unconsciously, that is having long-term influence on the culture and should be recognized. And that I hadn't seen that much in linguistic anthropology as I wanted personally. So I felt, speaking of a calling and the gift, and I felt a responsibility of something larger than me needs to do this so that African-Americans behind me can come and have these conversations. We can, uh, anthropologists can then look um, at the communities that they're ignoring I'll just say conscious or unconscious, and say, hmm, we need to have more conversations around this. So that's what I'm trying to do. Wow, even just that breakdown of like what, from 500 years of what uh, has unfolded has then broken down into so many other subcategories of linguistic anthropology is that in itself is already whoa. And then after that is, well, then you also had to have sociolinguistics. So it's like people of different socioeconomic statuses. Oh, definitely. Are, I mean, yeah. no culture, group, community is a monolith, right? There's so many levels to this. Um, and I think the way black culture sometimes, or any you know minority culture gets depicted as one level. But yeah, sociolinguists and linguistic anthropologists, and I won't go into how they're very different, but had to bring in the socioeconomic aspect of it because I'm middle class black. I grew up in the, uh, the second richest black county in the nation, which is in Atlanta. Um, I'm now studying a population that's in the richest black county, which is in DC, PG County. And so it became, very obvious that when we're talking about African-American English, we weren't necessarily always talking, people were thinking about in terms of like low income, urban spaces, not even thinking about um, regional varieties of African-American English. What I'm gonna see in New York is gonna be different in the South, it's gonna be different on the West Coast, it's gonna be different depending on socioeconomics, it's gonna be different depending on if I align more prominently with black culture, if I'm moving in spaces where I'm predominantly in white areas, um, how much I can code switch, or if I'm just participating in other communities um, of culture, whether that's being, I don't know, blurreddom, right? The blurred culture or whatever movements that, um, for instance, I'm in a belly dance world, right? Like I might, I might have other kinds of varieties or other kinds of jargon that will be specific to that. So everyone was just trying to be as open and diverse as they were trying to define African-American English, so they weren't 
outside anyone. And that led into African-American women's language and other these pockets mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of the variety that are still being unfolded. Um, and someone can pick up something in five minutes, um, five, I mean, five years from now and come up with a new definition or community that I might not even be aware of. So it's still very much evolving. And this also includes Americas at large, like Central and South America? Well, well when I say AAL, definitely I'm dealing with African America in the States. In the but state. there okay. is definitely look at language in South America. There's definitely look at black people in Europe. There's so many, um, like I just left a discourse analysis seminar with Jennifer Roth Gordon looks at Afro-Brazilians and race and talk there. Yeah. And that's gonna be and realize a little bit differently than African-Americans just because of the um, the cultural perspective, the way the, the national perspective is looked at, you know, race gets talked about very differently in the Americas than it does, say, in South America or in the Caribbean or in Africa. Like, it's just going to look different. Yeah. But when I'm saying AAL, I'm literally, literally look, looking at the African-American experience. The, yes, the, in the States, in the, the United States. States. So give us, give us an understanding of what are some of these findings around um, linguistic anthropology as well as um, uh, uh, even to the, to the extent of some of the most interesting aspects of these pockets. Mm -hmm. um, and also, what are some of the obstacles that are in the way uh, and how can, we, how can we build a social fabric that enables it to get rid of the obstacles, make it easier for people to actualize those, those gifts moving forward? And when you say obstacles, actualizing gifts, can you just... Yeah, like anything that is um, some sort of an impediment to people actualizing gifts. So whether okay. it be, yes, yeah. In, in my field? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Because we just had Randy on the show and he was giving us a, like he would walk up to his um, teacher in, in middle school and he mm -hmm. would start speaking and she would be like, where did you learn to speak like that? <laughs> Sorry, that, that, that just gives yeah. me a reaction. Well, um, well, yeah, well, <laughs> well to me, me too, I'm just thinking like, well, can we make it so that we don't say like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wish I had this very pretty answer for that. Can we make it so that there's not these pockets that get judged in certain ways or that there's these open um, access to explore language in all its facets without it being impeded, it, it's different. I can only talk about from my experience and I had a lot of barriers to get to the point where I could do this research. Some would, again, conscious or unconscious, that could be argued. Um, a lot of it has to do with just how academia is in itself in that it's been just driven from dominant culture. And um, so the ways things get talked about, as, especially as an African-American scholar, if I want to be able to knock down doors, I am very much aware that I also, how is that gonna position me later if I want jobs, to have certain conversations, to move in this space where people don't peg me as a troublemaker, right? So if I'm saying something that's challenging the way people already understand it and have said, oh, no, 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 we already got this figured out. Thank you for your input. But, but you're good, you, you young scholar, thank, thank you, that's cute. Um, I don't know how to sometimes infiltrate that, right? Other than to, it's, 
for me, it's sheer will of being like, no, I'm not going to deal with this, and I don't want people behind me dealing with this, and just knocking down the doors, and sometimes that builds relationships, and sometimes that breaks relationships. Mm -hmm. I've had experiences of that where that's put me in the place where my work was blocked in certain areas and in certain fields, and I had to kind of just be willing to keep being creative and move like water through these crevices and find mm -hmm. a way out. So I think... Um, it's funny, within African-American language studies, a lot of the white scholars who were doing research, I was listening at, to a documentary, and they were saying, you know what, it's time that white scholars get out the way and let black people talk about their own language. And I think that's a lot that was that has to happen. People have to let the people who have lived these experiences, who have the investment in these communities and in these language structures, be the experts in that and be willing to again, taking ego out of it and get out of the way. And that's very hard when you've built a career on being an, a, let's say an African-American scholar as a non-black person, or mm -hmm. a, you know, I am a feminist, but I am male, whatever that is, mm -hmm. and you know, getting out of the way. So there's one in that sense of people being willing to get over themselves a little bit yeah, and yeah. just say, there's room at the table for multiple perspectives and I might not have the lock on that. But then there's also being, um, willing to go up against challenges where you're someone that's, when you're doing this work, recognizing it's not easy, it hasn't been easy for those before us, and, but I have a responsibility for those behind me to keep trying. And as we talk about it more, that will create space for more talk. As we break down more walls, that will create more openness. And as I make good on this opportunity, that will create more opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So it's very much from the top down, the power structures, and then people being responsive full for like, I want to be an advocate in this way. I want to create opportunities in this way. It's both and. Yeah, speaking of people getting out of the way, we talk about this so much on the show that we have in many ways archaic codes that still govern a world where very young consciousness is trying to become more sustainable, is trying to evolve and grow and heal our planet to the next world and we have just this grasp of in many ways greed corruption just a bunch of old codes that need to die mm -hmm. it's like let go of the throat of the biosphere and let the next evolution happen but they don't want to let go because there's money involved in the old codes and so that's this seems like a very similar uh, way of, of viewing that first one and then on the second one and can I just say yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, and it's not even just money. Sometimes it's just the comfort, right? Like, I already am comfortable in this way. I don't want to give that up yeah, yeah. because to be out of your comfort zone is to lose power in itself. And then we're seeing that, it, just to kind of give it a language spin, we're seeing language evolve right before us when it comes to, say, use of pronouns, right? Yeah. But now we got an old system, our case system. Why should I have to do that? Why should I have to learn your pronoun? That's not how it's been for me. It's been he or she, and it's by sex. But we're in now this movement where, again, young consciousness, new, right, is evolving in front of our eyes and saying, no, there's non-gender binaries, right? I mean, there's non-binary gender identity. Um, there is, or this new way of understanding sexuality, right? There's new pronouns that need to be, it's not, and you can ask me what my pronoun is, and I and honor that. But what happens when people are like, nope, that's uncomfortable for me. I don't want to do that. I don't want to learn a new system because that's going to make me um, 
subject to your expertise in this field or your demands in this field, but the world has been bent to my will for the longest time. Getting out of the way involves that as well, being willing to be the novice in a new area that's evolving right before you. This is such an interesting um, back and forth on what uh, in many ways is the very classical um, like open consciousness trying to advance and evolve and then somewhat of a more archaic consciousness that's trying to uh, hit the ball back to the young one saying, well, think about it this way. Maybe it's better in this regard and right. then it just goes back Always and forth. gatekeepers, yeah. It's, well, it's interesting to see that back and forth because maybe there are actually some times when the uh, maybe when the, the younger consciousness is trying to make a move in a certain direction that there is a ball that's hit back uh, from the older one, consciousness that says, well, what about this, that, that, that? And then the younger one goes, well, actually, you know, this and that one are really good. And then, yeah, there's always this, it's a... It's a joint. It's co-constructed. It's co-constructed. It's co not one or the other because we also yeah. got to honor our elders as well because yes. there's that memory and consciousness that comes from the tradition that yes. that has implications and should not just be tossed out in order yes, out of yes. newness either. Yes, yes, this is well said. And then the second part that you mentioned mm -hmm. I think is so, so interesting is that when you have something like a, a, an analysis of, 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 uh, of, of language that is being used, um, especially over um, uh, the use of African-American language mm -hmm. here in the last 500 years. I'm really curious as to what exactly have been um, some of the most interesting ways of perceiving how people have been overcoming, like you said, um, making it, getting through obstacles, bringing gifts to the world. You were talking about like there are, you know, we didn't know, there's, a, there's the richest uh, African-American communities in DC, second mm -hmm. richest in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. What is going on in those areas that is special about the way that people are talking or behaving that enables them to be so wildly successful and how can other people potentially take on some of those habits? So I'll speak more about DC because that's where my research is. Even though I'm from Atlanta, um, I, I left and has been kind of more ingrained in the DC culture um, for I would say this decade. And um, with in, in consideration of African-American language, what drew me in terms of gifts was to the spoken word community there, the spoken word poetry um, to be specific. Um, and it's a perform, for those who don't know, it's a performance poetry. Um, people kind of know it as, you know, when they make fun of it, they're like, oh, snap, snap. And it's very much like it's musical in nature, has its own pacing. And, and um, it draws a lot from African-American um, culture in the sense that it's not just someone reading a poem, it's very interactive. It's almost like this conversation, the audience talks back, which, brings in black um, church traditions of this uh, call and response. It brings in levels of um, hip hop culture and um, what is so good about this community. And I, wanna, I don't wanna own it like I'm discovering this art by any means because it's been here for a long time um, and I am not the expert, but they let me into this world. Um, but as a first, as a fan, I observed this tradition in these open mic um, spaces where these artists, and because that's what they are, would use, and I don't think they were just saying like, I'm using black language. I think they were speaking how they would speak or in, in, in any way that they felt was creative, using interesting metaphor, interesting pacing and rhyming in a way that worked for them. But I'm seeing these black artists 
who were pushing back at power structures, who were positioning blackness as this thing to be proud of, was positioning black language in very creative ways that was, you, you just can't walk on this, walk into this stuff. It is a craft, mm -hmm. the way they make use of words, but also the way they make use of um, being a global citizen, you know, it's using language to make it a better place, whether that is to educate um, the masses on how, let's just say in DC, let's go very specific, mm -hmm. where gentrification, for instance, is taking over, where African Americans um, that have been born and bred or located in this area for a long time, their culture is kind of being erased as um, white people, um, the gentry, the elites, um, transplants, not all white, but um, non-DC based, are moving in and taking over. They use their language to kind of show, let me just show you what Chocolate City is. Let me show you what DC mm -hmm. is. Let me show you don't own these spaces. Let me show you what you're erasing. Let me bring in and add in my flavor of language, talk about the food culture, talk about the history of DC, defining what Chocolate City is to first educate you so that you're aware of what you're erasing, consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. But also to empower those who are from these areas to say, you know what, you are of importance. You do have a space, you do have a place. Your story deserves to be told. And the way spoken word is by giving a person a mic and a stage and a moment is very empowering in itself, right? So when I saw that, that very much inspired me. N maybe not to be a spoken word artist, but to use my voice as an academic. And of course, I use my voice as an academic to highlight them, mm -hmm. but like to be empowered to talk about black language from a positive perspective, to own it, to love it. Um, but also, I, when, to think about how I want to be an artist in other ways. Like it just empowered me to embrace myself, to embrace my dreams, that these Groups of people who may not have had every advantage and opportunity and resources are finding ways to literally, I mean, we've been doing this as black people, making a dollar out of 15 cents, you know, or making something out of nothing, turning a mayonnaise sandwich into a meal. Like they use what they have naturally in language and, and what they love in terms of culture and music and poetry and that blend and create this beautiful art form, yeah. right? that is reflective of who they are, who they want to be, and informing other people how they can more responsibly move about in the world. So they might yeah. challenge hyper or toxic masculinity. They might challenge um, systems of abuse, whether that's physical, emotional, or whatever. Or they might even challenge getting involved um, in your voting process. They use it for whatever platforms, right? To talk about love even. It's not just from social advocacy in that way to say black love is beautiful, family is beautiful. So I love that it challenges me every time I go in these spaces. Um, and to do it in an artistic way makes it non-threatening. So yes. someone who's coming in these spaces who might, if you just spoke at them and say privilege, you're infiltrating, but to hear it poetically, they might sit back and like, okay, let me receive this because one, it's beautiful to listen to, but it's also, it's not, it's, it's something that they're going to churn on and think on later because it stays with you, because it moves in rhyme and verse and we yeah. hold on to that more. Yeah, Does you, that make sense? Like bypassing the gatekeeper is something that's <laughs> been talked about in art and music really? performance <laughs> for a while. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a really good way to put it. And if you can do these different ways of uh, synthesizing storytelling art that is uh, awakening uh, 
it's uh, transformative for our collective. And so I really like the example in DC because actually we're experiencing this in the Bay Area, in Oakland a lot mm -hmm. right now. Um, we're experiencing the, uh, across the world in different areas of yeah. just urbanization. We, in even somewhere like Oaxaca City, right? <laughs> you, you know, you wouldn't have ever thought that, that there would be an indigenous that live right outside the city that have uh, had urbanization happening to them. And, and so this is happening in so many different places what what do we do about trying to retain culture and tradition uh, we've just seen this big power law happening with language languages are becoming like dead economic languages nobody wants mm -hmm. to speak them anymore mm -hmm. you're just learning English or Mandarin uh, and that's you know this this is like what 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 do we do about retaining the culture that we we it's it's so unfortunate at times that yes, we want to build the singularity right. and artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. So we need all the engineers moving to San Francisco. Right. <laughs> uh, but you know, you, but then you have the the these beautiful artists that have that aren't able to pay three grand a month per right. bedroom right. in rent. Um, and so there's got to be a new way of seeing what the value is that actually philosophy, morality. Uh, ethics, um, spirituality, that if we don't embed those things in uh, engineering mm -hmm, and design mm -hmm. and the general intelligence and all these right. things that we're trying to build, that we're going to have more suffering by accident because right. we didn't do that. Yeah, speaking of collective, yeah, not just saying, oh, because now it's STEM only, right? STEM and humanities even becoming like obsolete. It's seeing that they all work together, right? Like biz we need business, we need farmers, <laughs> we need artists. We need all of it, right? But in terms of what do we do to preserve, yeah. I mean, I think this is one thing I do like about anthropology, especially especially linguistic anthropology. There are a lot of movements that are preserving language. There are a lot of revitalization movements that are trying to um, save endangered languages or what could be seen as um, those that are dying out. Um, and some of that can be problematic depending on who's revitalizing because someone might say, well, what version of the language gets, um, you know, privileged as the real language that was dying out. But, but still, there are these movements in place where people are trying um, and aware. And I think a lot of anthropologists come from that, trying to preserve texts like from um, Native Americans. A lot of what I've learned about linguistic anthropology where people were trying to say, we don't want to lose this. Um, even it was done a lot outside of the community though, not from the people themselves. But what I like is um, a lot of people from within the communities, and that's what I'm trying to do, is trying to highlight spoken word poetry so that it is brought into academic consciousness so that it can be celebrated, not just in public spaces, but in academic spaces. So I think a lot of scholars are finding, you know, the arts and the languages that they have connections to and doing work that will hopefully preserve it in other you know ways whether yes, that's for yes. um, by writing about it in journals in my case i would love to do an ethnographic film to kind of even show yeah. it you know from a public you know to a late audience and not just do it for academic spaces yes yes but part of it is being okay or to know that my language is valuable right that it is worth preserving and it's, I didn't even know, first off, that I spoke this thing called African-American language, but I was very much taught as a middle-class blacks female, get rid of it. Don't talk like that. That's not going to get you anywhere, right? 
you need to sound educated. It wasn't until I entered in classrooms that gave me a term that there's this thing called African-American English at the time. And by giving it a name, it gave it power. It made it real, right? But then to see people who were studying this and calling it, this has a structure, this has value, you know, by saying that out loud, it empowered me to own it first. We can't preserve it if we don't own it, right? We can't preserve it if we don't believe it's valuable. Mm -hmm. So I think first by defining it and giving people space to then say, okay, this deserves study. And then letting people um, operate in that. Because a lot of, there's a lot of languages that get impeded by power structures, whether that's governments, whether that's institutions and, and academics that say this is invaluable because I don't speak that or that looks like you're dumb or that looks like you're, you know, you don't belong here, right? I think redefining what is language for people um, and redefining and taking away things that says this is bad and this is good or this is right and this is wrong redefining what standardization is like okay American standard English is just one variety not the variety how we talk about it will change how things get preserved as well yeah. so a lot of it's just education and then a lot of it is patronizing I mean one of the things about spoken word arts or arts in general in order to preserve it is we have to go out and seek it out right mm -hmm. vote with your dollars mm -hmm. support artists yes. support their movements get involved i might not be a spoken word artist but i can be an enthusiast yep. and i can learn about it and i can give back by whether it's through my scholarship or just going to spoken word everywhere every city i go that's what i used to do let me find the spoken word cafes yeah. let me find that you know so it's also patronizing these patroning artists. Patroning the arts. Yeah, I mean not patronizing, patroning the yeah, arts. Yeah. You know, giving your dollars to things you believe in, giving your time to things, because it's not just dollars. We aren't, we are, I'm not rich by any means, I'm a PhD student, but I gave my time. Yep. I gave my dedication to wanting to learn about this. And they were very much like, wow, you really want to do a dissertation on this? Yes, because it has value. Yeah, yeah. It seems as though there's, pretty much an infinite amount of permutations that exist for ways to leverage arts to awaken people to culture that is that can be preserved. We can leverage art to preserve culture and it can be patroned by people that both want to go and attend with their time and experience and also just financially, monetarily, there's, there's a big issue that we have happening right now where it's as though these top 1500 billionaires on the planet are choosing again whether it's consciously or unconsciously mm -hmm. they're choosing to purchase additional boats planes cars designer <laughs> clothes mm -hmm. you name it and they're not choosing to support the 50% of the population right. that still makes less than $2.50 a day which right. is our cost of a cup of coffee right so there is a big consciousness shift that needs to happen from that top perspective about the use of arts mm -hmm. and the way that arts can actually do things that eventually we'll all want, which is to know how we even got here in the first place. Mm -hmm. So use the arts to preserve things that give us a better understanding of cultural evolution, how we actually got here, and then have it, and then have it recorded. You know, have it recorded, have it accessible, documented. documented. Right. Yeah. But you know, I, and this is what I love about language. Language has power. Not, you know, and obviously I've seen that by watching spoken word artists, but by giving things a label, we give it, it we say it exists. 
right? Like people always say, why do we have to come up with this word called intertext I mean, uh, intersectionality? Or why do we have to come up with this word toxic masculinity? Because if I can name it, then I can identify it, I can see it, I can figure out how I feel about it, I can position myself closer or away from that, right? How we define what is even art, right, is necessary. Because a lot of people think of arts, it's ballet, it's sculpting, it's these high art, right? And then these folk arts get kind of othered and outside it. Um, and if we also, because there's so many people that might still ask me, well, what is folk art? They don't know about it, right? So part of it is, one, redefining what is art, um, what gets value will, again, get a name, but then talking about it, um, sharing it with others, right? Exposing it, right? Because a lot of what I've learned about in black culture is certain, so th things have existed long before I started studying them, but I just wasn't hearing about it histories weren't being passed down that preserved it because people would just say, oh, well, you know, this is just what I know. It's not a value, it's not a view, so I don't need to talk about this anymore. And so we would be losing, in my history, for instance, in my family, certain stories or, or oral histories that I'm like, what? I have a father that did this. I have yeah. a, you know, uh, a relative yeah. that did that. Yeah. We don't talk about it, yeah. you know? And by not talking about it, by not sharing and passing down even the stories or traditions yeah. or, yeah calling it art, we don't give it space to be preserved. This is the other big challenge of our times is it, the economic machinery is just choking people and it's making it so that I can't even afford time <laughs> on love, yeah. on friends, mm -hmm. on passions, on nature, on passing on down sports, traditions, yes. passing down tradi traditions. Uh, sleep has taken the biggest toll, mm -hmm. which directly affects our physiology mm -hmm. and our moment-to-moment -moment health. So we're literally deteriorating when we sleep four or six hours instead oh, of that you're talking eight. to a grad student, so yeah. yes. <laughs> All of these is choking us. It's choking us. Mm -hmm. People who can't, the, 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 something that's so deeply important is being able to fall in love, to experience a deep, profound love, to have a, so, a robust social network with five or ten really good friends, cooking yeah. meals, growing food, experiencing all these things has taken a huge backseat to the fact that I gotta run and work all day long well, to make yeah, money. Yeah, if you're in survival mode, there's not time for this stuff, right? If you're literally, I mean, and I'm speaking literally from a grad experience, if I gotta choose between doing laundry and feeding myself and doing this paper and doing, I think that's where we are. There is not enough time to enjoy life, to build community. If you can't build community, how can I see myself in another person's experience? Yeah. If I can't talk to someone, how do I pass down, these, pass down these traditions? If I don't have time to, if I'm working 10 jobs, how, how do I have time to go and see this great artistic space? Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> what do you do with that when you're in hustle mode all the all time? The time. Yeah. And that's something I'm learning too that was reflected in a spoken word culture. A lot of them had to actively work to preserve these spaces and weren't sleeping. These were artists that were just saying, you know what, I'm gonna take away from sleep because I find this art and this life and this poet thing so important. Not only because it's feeding me, but because like literally feeding me in terms of like putting money in my pocket, but it's feeding my community emotionally, healing trauma, right? So a lot of the artists that was they were going off of four hours of sleep to give back to the art, but is that helping? I don't know. You know, you gotta make, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, in a sense, to figure out what is a value, 
to preserve myself, all right, or to be economically viable, or to be community-centered, it's choices. And this redesign of our global social fabric is a main future focus, yet in order to do so with the greatest amount of awareness, we need to start with the first principle of the deepest amount of the one, the interconnectedness. There is no separation, the unity with all of the other species on this planet, the interconnectedness of our ecological systems that sustain us. If a child is taught all of that upon birth and they're able to experientially know it and share it in project-based learning around solving the sustainable development goals during their uh, educational process, mm -hmm. learning social-emotional intelligences, mm -hmm. if, if all of that happens, that new future, that new social fabric has the breathing space for all of these great things that we've been talking about. Right. But otherwise, right now, at times, it just feels like there is just a couple of people in the planet that are just siphoning off all of these new emerging market right. the fruits of all these new emerging technologies that mm -hmm. are coming, and people are stuck. We're just stuck. Median male income in the U.S., flatlining, GDP skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. Where is all the money going? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We know where it's going. Right. It's going to the top 1%. <laughs> we know right. it. It's not, a, it's not a where anymore. It's a right. we know. And next is, uh, if you're not willing to pay a half a percent tax on all Wall Street transactions to try and fund these types of educational first principled ideas, then you are not enlightened whatsoever and you have no place at all in the discourse. Period. But if you your don't. systems say capitalism, right, which says competition is good and I have the right to go out and earn as much as I can get, right, to be as successful as I can get based on my own merit and I got here by my own doing and I have the right to collect as much wealth as I want, there is no we embedded in that kind of structure in and of itself, right? So then to say, 1%, can you please pass down some and yeah, yeah. say no to opportunity, say no to wealth, and you know, for the greater good, that's not built into the structure that allowed them to get that wealth, right? Yeah. And you know, community. Have you heard of inclusive stakeholding? No. It's uh, just like how uh, your, you know, your, like back in the tribal days, mm -hmm. uh, your, your, or even today, your mom will not tell you something to try and like get money from you. Mm -hmm. Your mom and dad are telling you things because they care about you. Right, And right. just like your tribe members would, it's inclusive fitness, would tell you stuff, mm -hmm. don't go over there, you know, eat this, don't mm -hmm. eat that, et cetera, because they cared about you and the rest of the tribe members. Now you have people that tell you things to earn money from you. Right. And it's, it's big food, it's big transactional. pharma. It's yeah. a transactional. Relationship, And yeah. so an inclusive stakeholding solves that by doing things like when you, when you do something like a, when you have a physician, the physician has a stake in the actual patient that is visiting mm -hmm. them. The teacher has a stake in the student. Right, right. right These yes. types of things, or you can even go to the company level and say that, okay, fine. Well, a company like Uber, you find yourself in downtown San Francisco, you 
have employees and, sharehold, and shareholders and investors, these are the people that are funding most of it. Yes, go ahead and take the shares that you would like. Mm -hmm. At the same time, allocate shares right. to the drivers that are driving to create your wealth, allocate shares to the customers that are buying the fares that are then also creating your wealth and the community of San Francisco that you have your headquarters in. Mm -hmm. These are really important aspects to the design of the new social contract that make it so that everyone takes the fruits right. and not just a select few. Right, but again, you have to be socialized into that thinking, right? From very early on. Community is, we throw that word around, but what does that really mean? Right? If, if your community are the people who just look like you, or the people who's in the one top percent, or the people you believe that got where they, you know, they should get because they deserved it, right? If that's your community, it's limited to that. But if your community is, if, again, I say I see myself as a global citizen, my, but I also see myself as part of the African-American community, the academic community. It's also being recognized that I, I have, I'm part of multiple com communities at the same time, right? Um, and I'm not limited to one, and that does not mean that I can only move in this space, but I see myself in these different perspectives as part of these different groups, but I've been socialized by people before me, by my mentors, by my family, to see myself that way. I, I have friends that grew up right down the street from me that don't see themselves. They just see themselves in Atlanta community or the black community or you know whatever job they're in and I'm sure the same way everyone has to kind of be told yes there's this local thing there's this family thing but then there's this national thing there's this global thing there's yeah. this ecological thing the scales. yeah the yeah. scales yeah. and that's actually what I bring in my research because I'm like there's so many levels to this yeah. but if you can't see those levels as connected then you do move in this like one dimensional space yes 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 Yes. So uh, these are the worldview augmentations to be able to actually see those different scales and to truly also experientially know the truth of those scales that you don't just go and get something from a store for a sheet of paper and then just toss it later and then just that all, no, these things are sourced from somewhere, manufactured somewhere, then shipped across oceans, and they land in the stores, and you spend time making money, and then it just goes into the landfill. You know, this is a very complicated, intricate process mm -hmm. that if you've never actually went to the extent of trying to understand, you will continuously immerse yourself in ignorance. And, and I will, I will, until the day I die, be ch chipping away at the boulder of ignorance that is attached to my ankle. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I will keep going, and I will keep learning, and I will keep trying to learn the most important things that I think can build that future world that I want to live in. And to have that style of passion in, in, instilled, whatever works for people on their climb up the mountain, it's mm -hmm. not a one-size-fits-all thing. Mm -hmm. Whatever way works for you to climb up the mountain towards your gifts, towards the oneness, right. do it. But go and know that that is one of these first principles and that you can't, you can't just plop a child onto the monopoly board of the economic <laughs> machinery. Right, right. But again, it's, it's how we talk about things at a very basic level. I mean, when you can't have conversations around the dinner table, which doesn't even happen, right? But, you know, I look at, and, and I try to give people a break, because I understand, I, I heard this from, I can't remember who it was that 
everyone wakes up in their own time, right? Mm. Like, you know, it's easy to look at someone that says, oh, you're not part of this greater con consciousness. At one point, I wasn't either, right? Mm -hmm. Someone had to wake me up, right? So I don't mm. know who it was. Maybe it was a collective that did it or a, mm. multiple yeah. interactions that did it. But along the way, as I woke up, I can't look back at someone and say, oh, you just not woke. I wasn't either. We all wake up at different times, right? But it's being aware that if I, now that I am woke, how can I talk to other people in ways with compassion, with kindness, you know, with understanding of that they're on their own trajectory that will maybe just be a seed, you know, just yes. plant a seed and water that. And I look at, and I'm, it's just a random example, like you were just talking about seeing the source material as being part of this bigger structure. I remember looking at a TV show where these kids, um, they were, people were judging, oh, they just don't eat healthy, they just don't eat healthy, you know, just judging them. They had no idea ketchup came from a tomato. It was so fascinating. I can't remember, it was a show, of, I think his name was Jamie Oliver, was trying to mm -hmm. do in the States to revolutionize how cafeteria gets, uh, cafeteria food gets talked about and dealt with in low income spaces. It's very easy to say you're just not eating healthy and just write people off as being ignorant, right? But if kids had never known, here's a tomato and here's ketchup. Here's chicken nuggets that comes from chicken. Here is fries that come from a potato. Right? They had no idea because no one had introduced them to that. Right? But they were just moving about in the world just saying, I eat chicken nuggets, I eat fries, and I eat ketchup, and that's all I know. But people were judging them as being ignorant. Right? But when Jamie came in and introduced them and gave them a picture of, no, this comes from this. Yes. And this is farmed from farmers. Yes. And this was planted in this way, and exactly. this is going to feed this economy. Right? Exactly. These kids were excited about it. They did not want to know. Right? It wasn't like they were like, I don't want to know. Yeah, I'm going to walk around course, with blinders. Someone had to introduce them to that yeah, yeah. in a very yeah. non-threatening way yes. without judgment. Yes. We also can't just be talking to people and saying, you should give up power. You should do this because you, you know, you're horrible. There has to be a way to have these conversations in a place that, yes, is critical, but that allows people to wake up in their own time. Yeah, that's great, Tiffany. Thank you so much for that. That was so nice. I really appreciate it. And, um, and that's a really good example of just um, a way to just introduce that uh, compassionate style of education. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really yeah, good. Yeah, because academy like can be very judgmental yeah. And, yeah. And, and elitist, and I don't want to be that. Yeah. yeah. So I try to think yeah. about it from a place of compassion. I have a final question to ask. Okay. <laughs> what do you think is most beautiful? Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is so difficult. Um, I think, and this is, it sounds so loaded, but I was talking about it um, with a friend today who's actually here. Um, we talked a lot about this, and I think we're kind of talking about it now. Empathy. Yeah. Right? Um, not just sympathy and being able to look down at someone and say, oh, poor you, but to be able to look at someone's experience as different as it is and to find something of connection that then makes it relevant to you. I might not have literally walked in your shoes, like I might not have not grown up in this context that you existed, but I appreciate family. I appreciate, I have struggled before, therefore I can respect that your struggle while it looks different, it still makes sense to me, right? I still understand that I want you to achieve and to grow and to dream and to, right? Like to look at someone that you might not have absolutely nothing in common with, but to work to find commonality. 
in some way, if nothing else, in just being in the, we're in the human experience of trying, I feel like everyone's doing the best they can, if nothing else. I think that's beautiful, to give people that kindness in this world of unkindness. I hope that's not sappy. <laughs> mm -mm. But as someone who has struggled a lot as a black academic, as a black female, as a black scholar, as a first generation scholar in my family, what has made me continue to do this is those people who I've empathized with me and helped me along the way. That little bit of extra love and empathy butterfly effects out mm -hmm. in the actualization of the gifts. And then I will do that again yeah. for someone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks, Sophie. Thanks for coming on the Thank show. Thank you for inviting me. This was fun. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you had fun. Thanks for all your great work. Really mm -hmm. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We really appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. Check out all of Tiffany's links in the bio below as well. You can also find the American Anthropological Association links in the bio below. Support them as well. You can find all of our show links as well in the bio. You can support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the spiritual leaders, the organizations in your communities and around the world that you believe in. Support them and help them grow. Patron the arts. Yes. Please, patron yes. the arts. You can find all of our links to Patreon, cryptocurrency, PayPal, Design Cool Merchant, get paid all those links in the bio below. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in. Build the next world. We'll see you soon. Peace. <laughs> That's awesome. That's Yay. a wrap. Thank you. Thank you.